You're listening to Heart Sounds from the Pulse of Cardiology. Hello from New York. Welcome to the May episode of Heart Sounds. I'm Caitlin Cox, the news editor of TCTMD. This month, I'm your guest host, filling in for Shelley Wood. Our editorial team has recently been quite busy crisscrossing the world to attend cardiology conferences. Beyond the fun of traveling, would I turn down a boat ride on the Seine? It's also a great chance for us to meet you, our readers, face to face. In late April, Yael Maxwell made it to the European Atherosclerosis Society meeting in Prague. And a few weeks later, she joined me, Shelley, and Micah Reardon at EuroPCR in Paris. Also, Laura McEwen had a great time at Sky 2017 in New Orleans, where she delved into the challenges of social media for physicians and returned to the topic of radiation-induced eye damage in the cath lab. Emmanuel Berlakis, who spearheaded the IC cataract study looking at the eye health of interventional cardiology staff, told Laura that getting an exam every year is advisable. On top of all this excitement, we kept up our usual coverage of cardiology news. Here are a few of my favorite stories. Earlier this month, Shelley took a close look at the recent decision by lawmakers in India to list coronary stents as essential medicines. This designation was tied to a price cap that slashed the price of coronary stents to roughly 25% of their previous cost. The hope is that the cheaper prices will lead to an increase in the dismal number of patients who currently undergo primary angioplasty there. The National Pharmaceutical Pricing Authority's action is being hailed by interventional cardiologists who, for years, have seen most of their patients and their patients' families turning down the option of PCI and stenting due to its sheer unaffordability. There has been pushback, however. International stent manufacturers have petitioned to have some of their devices removed from the Indian market, a request that Indian authorities are rejecting. Instead, the regulators say Abbott, Medtronic, and others must have their products available to Indian hospitals for a period of six months. You'll have to read Shelley's feature story to hear more about the fallout from India's bold move, but in the meantime, here's Pendra Call from the Fortis Escorts Heart Institute in New Delhi, India, speaking with her about what the device companies might do next. When the six-month deadline passes, do you think that these large companies will pull out, or do you think they will allow their product to be sold at a lower price? I finally think that India being a growing market, and in spite of all the shortcomings, if we're doing about 500,000 angioplasties a year, which is growing, and this is in terms of numbers, only second to U.S. and uh, big countries, Germany and others, you know, in terms of numbers, cannot be ignored. Yeah. This market cannot be ignored. So I think they have to, they will find ways because uh, in other markets, angioplasty numbers have become stagnant in U.S. and Europe because, you know, of the prevention programs and other things. Right. But here the market is still growing, at least 6 to 7% growth every year. Some of our biggest news this month, of course, came from EuroPCR, where attendees were sharing the latest data and celebrating the 40th anniversary of angioplasty. Last month, we told you about the AIDA trial, one of the latest studies to give the field pause over absorbed BVS. Now, a new analysis from AIDA, presented in Paris, showed that the risk of stent thrombosis with the device is unpredictable. Specifically, whether or not operators adhered to the PSP protocol did not significantly lower the risk of clinical events. Another study, Topic, 
garnered headlines for showing that a strategy already in use in many parts of the world to save money during PCI also actually works. Switching the antiplatelet regimen of ACS patients at one month post-PCI from newer, more potent P2Y12 inhibitors to clopidogrel can reduce bleeding without increasing the risk of later ischemic events, researchers found. Yael Maxwell spoke with Dara Malote of University Hospital Galway in Ireland to get his take on neuro-PCR data. Here he discusses what topic brings to the table. I think this was a, a really fantastic uh, trial presented by Thomas Cuisset from Marseille. Um, really uh, suggesting the potential of this strategy. Many of us in day-to-day -day clinical practice, we, we see the, the huge advantages with the, the more potent P2Y12 inhibitors early on in the patient's journey after, after ACS or, or PCI. But I think later on, we, we, we probably see more bleeding events than ischemic events. And, and as interventional cardiologists, I think we always um, approach the patient first with, our, um, with the idea to prevent ischemia, and we're probably a little bit less aware of the, of the issue of bleeding. Um, I think this trial suggests that a practice that is currently employed in many, uh, uh, by clinicians around the world can potentially be beneficial for our patients. It can reduce bleeding, reduce cost, um, but I think we also have to be cognizant of the fact that we have large randomized clinical trials of over 18,000 patients in the case of Plato that demonstrates a significant reduction in ischemic events beyond that one month period with the more potent P2Y12 inhibitors. So I think this data is absolutely stimulating, it's hypothesis generating, but I do think it requires a large clinical trial to, uh, uh, to, to be confirmatory. On the other hand, EuroPCR also offered some reassuring news on the absorbed BVS. Data from absorbed China and absorbed Japan showed very low rates of scaffold thrombosis between two and three years. Yael asked Milote what these studies might mean for the field. I think that um, most interventional cardiologists believe in the long-term um, uh, um, uh, long ideal uh, of, of being able to treat a patient and not, and not leave something behind. Um, of course, the, the first-generation device, which has been extensively studied in large randomized trials, um, has shown problems. Um, the physical properties of the first-generation stents um, have left a larger footprint on the vessel, and that's been associated with higher rates of uh, definite um, and probable uh, late stent thrombosis. We do know, however, that um, appropriately um, pre-dilating lesion, appropriately sizing the vessel and post-dilating mitigates some of that risk. And I think the data that was presented this week from Japan and, and China uh, really confirms that, uh, that suggestion. Um, these data suggest um, very low rates of um, late stent thrombosis uh, between two and three years, um, uh, comparable rates with uh, with science, uh, thin strut, drug-eluting stent. Um, and I, I really think um, it demonstrates the, the potential of this, of this technology. However, um, we of course have to, be, have to be cognizant of the fact that further study on, on, on newer devices with thinner struts is required. Um, and I think the current position uh, in terms of limiting um, the access to this new technology to highly experienced centers uh, in a very controlled way is, is the right way to, to get this technology uh, uh, to a level that, that it's going to be beneficial for our patients. Other popular hits from the meeting were Reprise 3 and NeuroCTO. 
You can read all of our on-the-ground coverage from Paris on our dedicated EuroPCR conference page. Tan Neal, though he didn't travel this month, still stayed busy. One of his most interesting stories fell a little outside our usual purview. It dealt with the pitfalls of going gluten-free. Focusing on a study published in the BMJ, Todd described how reducing or eliminating gluten intake can, if done without reason, do more harm than good in terms of coronary heart disease risk. He interviewed David Katz of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center to find out more. Have a listen to what Katz had to say. The, you know, the basic message here is that in efforts to avoid gluten because it's now the popular thing to do, there appears to be a grave risk of tossing out the baby with the bathwater. When Todd asked why people are anti-gluten in the first place, Katz said the reason isn't clear. I think most people don't know why they're avoiding gluten. It's because it's the latest boogeyman. Nutrition always seems to need one. So, you know, when it isn't gluten, it's GMO. And when it's not GMO, it's fructose. And, you know, I, I, I think we have such an over-simplified, dumbed-down approach to nutrition in this country that everybody's always looking for a silver bullet or a scapegoat. So you know, gluten's on the short list these days of the reasons why there are problems in the universe. And, you know, most people who are attempting to avoid gluten don't know why and don't even really know what it is and have no notion about what it will do to the overall quality of their diet or health. They're, they're just doing it because they heard they should. Of my own recent work, I'd say I had the most fun when reporting on a JAMA paper about conflicts of interest. Researchers wanted to find out what happens when academic medical centers put measures in place to curb visits from pharmaceutical sales reps. So they analyzed more than 16 million prescriptions written by nearly 27,000 physicians over a six and a half year time span. As it turns out, clinicians spared those interactions with industry are slightly but significantly less apt to prescribe the drugs that would have been promoted and they're more likely to choose generics. The shifts in prescribing habits were modest, but lead author Ian Larkin and colleagues estimated that they'd still add up to billions of dollars saved. For an outside perspective, I talked with James Kirkpatrick from the University of Washington in Seattle. Although there are advantages to detailing, he said, it's worth considering the big picture. My personal sort of thought is that um, I think it is very important to sort of in, in an era and an age in which trust in the medical profession is eroding for a variety of different reasons. It's actually probably more important than it ever has been to try to remain uh, ethically clean, try to have uh, the profession get back to its roots of helping people and being seen as disinterested and, um, and basically doing what it can to uh, to do the right thing. And to round out this episode, let's finish up with Michael Reardon's feature article. When it comes to lowering LDL cholesterol, he asks, can we go too far? The concept that lower is better began in earnest with the PRUVIT trial, a 2004 study showing that treating ACS patients to lower LDL cholesterol levels improved clinical outcomes. But when data from the four-year trial were presented at the American College of Cardiology 2017 meeting in March, they didn't so much, as Mike says, nudge the LDL threshold downward as blast a hole in the floor. The numbers provided support for LDL cholesterol levels at depths previous generations might have considered unsafe. Mike asked Saker Catherason of Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston if, based on four-year, 
there's any LDL level that would alarm him. We haven't really seen the full data in terms of, uh, we just saw the top line in terms of both efficacy and safety. Right. So I would like to see a bit more analyses on uh, the subs that got to very low levels. Right. But from, from all indications, again, half the patients in the trial got to less than 30. Right. Right. So there are lots of patients who got to 10, 15, 20, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, there, there didn't seem to be a problem. Right. So, uh, I mean, of course, we've only had two years, you know, of follow-up, so right. um, that does, I think that does mean that, you know, you have to be honest with the patient and say, look, at two years, they didn't have anything, but it doesn't mean that with more prolonged follow-up, something might not show up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not too alarmed. James Underberg from NYU Lingo Medical Center in New York told Mike that LDL levels can be thought of in different ways. Here's his answer to the question, how low should you go? As low as needed. As low as needed. <laughs> can you elaborate on that a bit? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a tough one to put a number on. Right. Um, because the conversation is more around, I think, when do you intervene? with an LDL-lowering agent at this point, rather than at what point do you stop? Right. I, I don't know if that, that makes sense or not, but it does, yeah. you know, we, ha- we, we, we have targets like LDL, mm-hmm. non-HDL cholesterol, and then we have goals like less than 100, less than 70, or a percent reduction, 50%, or a goal might be adherence to a medication like a statin at a high dose. Um, and so the question is, you know, when do you intervene with the next set of LDL-lowering agents? And, mm-hmm. and so I would, I would tell you that, that in many cases, uh, there are patients who are adequately controlled who have LDL cholesterol levels either below 100 or below 70 and are stable on statin and or azetamide, and there may not be a role to do anything further. But there are other patients for whom uh, they progress. They have continued events. And so then the next step at this point would be to add a PCSK9 inhibitor. Mm-hmm. And uh, their LDL will go down to a very low level. Right. But I'm not sure that where that number ends up is as important as that you now got them on the PCSK9 inhibitor and further lowered their LDL. So those are the TCTMD highlights for May. For every story I've mentioned, there are at least 10 more amazing stories online. Be sure to check out not only our homepage, but also Fellows Forum and the conference news page to get your fill. Warm weather seems to have finally hit around here, just in time for things to slow down as people take summer vacations. I like to imagine you all listening to this podcast by the pool with a daiquiri in hand. And while the spring meeting season has drawn to a close, we still have TVT, now in its 10th year, to look forward to. Michael O'Reardon and Shelley Wood will both be there in Chicago reporting on the latest valve news. If you catch a glimpse, make sure you stop by to say hi in person. As always, give a shout if you have any feedback on our site or ideas for stories. You can find me and the rest of the news team via our bios on TCTMD or track us down on Twitter. Thanks for tuning in to Heart Sounds. Have a great month. <laughs>